Good morning. So we are continuing our Masters, Mystics, and Metaphysicians theme and talking about Rumi. How many of you have read some Rumi? How many of you were here last week and learned a little bit you didn't know about Rumi? Right? Uh, Me too. It's been kind of interesting to go deeper because I really like the writings of Rumi. But there is so such a rich, rich story behind who Rumi is and why he wrote and, and kind of how we have to de-Americanize what we've learned about Rumi. Because we have a tendency to run all of this through the filters of our own culture. And it's really important to understand the culture that this beauty and grace came out of. So one of the things that I want to do is give you an opportunity to know a little bit more about Sufism and um, understand that aspect a little better. So we're going to watch this quick video. Sufism is the mystical branch of Islam. And the word Sufi comes from the word Suf, which is Arabic for a wool. There were mystics, there were ascetics, there were travelers. And what Sufism seeks to do is develop a personal relationship between the believer and the divine. Like most mystics, Sufism is not interested in an intercessor or an organized entity to mediate that relationship. And for many Sufis, that relationship takes the form of chanting, of singing, of dancing, and of other forms of artistic expression. Whereas more mainstream religious people will read sacred texts to find the word of God, mystics generally focus on what is beyond the word, on what is beyond duality, on the oneness of the experience. And that is often something that cannot be articulated through words. So art and poetry and music become powerful avenues to understanding God consciousness. And Sufis have pioneered this within the Muslim tradition for centuries. You can see a group like the Whirling Dervishes, who are followers of Rumi, and who have a very sophisticated way of whirling as a form of devotion or practice to God. Rumi is a Persian Sufi poet. He happens to be the best-selling poet in the United States, but he really comes out of a medieval literary tradition. And his work really illustrates how Sufis can have a direct relationship with God through literary, artistic, and musical avenues. And so for Sufis, their path is a path that directly connects with God without an intercessor. It's beyond words. It's more of an experience. And in that regard, Sufis have more in common with the other mystical traditions of the world uh, than they do even with their Muslim co-religionists. So we are a mystical tradition. Did you know that? We come out of the mystical experience of Charles and Myrtle Fillmore. Their mystic experience. And so we learned this, didn't we? We talked about what is a master, what is a mystic, what is a metaphysician. So let's just revisit that before we get started. So a master is someone who is committed to a particular study who commits their life to that study, and who finds a teacher who knows more than they do 
A master is someone who seeks out teachers who can take them to a new level, even when they might be claimed as masters by other people. They're always looking for a greater, broader sense of understanding of whatever it is that they are, are working to master. A mystic is someone who does not have an intercessor between them and the divine. So you can call the divine by whatever name you want. I like to use holy by the holy. So in a mystical experience, there is nothing between you, the human being, and your experience of the divine. And the reason that's so powerful is because once you experience something holy, a presence, a knowing that there is something there, no one can ever tell you that you're wrong. No one can ever take that away from you. Your personal experience belongs to you, and people can talk about their experiences in a variety of other ways, using a variety of other symbols and, and stories, and you'll still understand because you have had your own experience. And that's what happened with our founders, Charles and Myrtle Fillmore. Myrtle had a mystical experience with the divine that allowed her to heal tuberculosis. Her husband, Charles, was a skeptic and said, if it's good enough for you, it should be good enough for everybody. Should work for everybody. And he started spending time in deep, deep meditation and started having prophetic dreams and was able to have his own mystical healing experience. None of those were facilitated by anybody else. I always tell you, not my job to hand you God on a platter, right? It's only my job to say, this is available for you to explore. You have to do the work yourself. I'll help you find tools and maybe motivate you a little bit along the way. But we are a mystical tradition, not a proselytizing tradition that says you have to follow a particular path to God. We know that each of you will find a way that is just slightly or even greatly different from other people who are part of this community. And that's one of the reasons that I'm here, because I love that we're able to do that. So last week, oh, and let's cover metaphysician, that a metaphysician is a person who is looking at what is bigger than what we see in our everyday life. Metaphysical is greater than the physical. What is available to us beyond the physical in our day-to-day life experience? Those metaphysical teachings are often the things that take us to our mystical understanding. So that's why we're studying those three things. So Sufi, um, Sufism is a, an opportunity for an experience without an intercessor, for a mystical experience. Rumi was a Muslim. His father was a Muslim, considered a great king theologian, a very powerful, influential man who in his own right was a master a master of masters. And his son carried on his work. His son was a brilliant theologian and teacher. And at the time that he met Shams, who was his teacher, he had already achieved that level of theological recognition. He was known in his community as a brilliant Muslim teacher. But he was not yet a mystic. He was a theologian. And he had gone to the market. And you have to think, this is 13th century Persia. 
And Persia is Afghanistan, what we know now is Afghanistan, Turkey, Iran, that area. 13th century Persia, there would have been open souks, open markets. He will have gone to an open market like you've seen in, in movies. And the story is that he was at the market and that he was looking at books. And he had an armful and an older gentleman... And I use that term loosely because Shams was not considered a gentleman. He was, Rumi was about 38 and Shams was in his 60s. And Shams was a wanderer. He was a wandering teacher, a wandering esoteric teacher. And he came up to, and imagine again, in that culture where one caste, one level of society does not talk to another. At this wandering older man walked up to a very uh, strong presence, a teacher with an armful of books and said, what is that? What have you got there? What's that all about? And Rumi looked at him and said, something you wouldn't understand. And the story goes that Shams reached for the books took them out of his hands and dropped them in a bucket of water that was there to feed the animals. Well, imagine Rumi was not happy about this at all. And he reached over and grabbed the books out of the bucket and they were dry. And he said, what is this? And Sham said, something you wouldn't understand. (laughs) That story is told a second way. It's told with fire. It's told that instead of the books dropping in water, that Shams set them on fire, took them from him, set them on fire, and Rumi grabbed them back, and when he did, the flames were extinguished and the books were in perfect shape. Hard to believe. Hard to believe. Would shock me if that happened to me. How about you? Something powerful happened when these two men met. This is the story. Could it be real? It could. And it could be something that came out of the culture as a story to give us an idea of how powerful their meeting was. How powerful it was that they came to know one another in a way that was different than the way people usually come to know one another. So Rumi and Shams became student and teacher in both directions. Because remember, Rumi was a brilliant theologian. Shams was an experiential theologian. Shams was a man who had experience in things beyond words. And Rumi was a teacher of all that was recorded. And so they taught each other. They connected on a peer level. And truly, when we look for love, aren't we looking for someone who can meet us in an equal place? Someone who contributes to our life in a profound way we can't imagine and to to whose life we can also contribute so that we see each other. We're present to each other. So Shams and Rumi went away soon after they met. They were only together three years. It sounds like the story of a lifetime, but it was three years. 
they, when they came together, they immediately went away from everyone for 40 days and 40 nights. And in that time, they taught each other. And they engaged in deep, heartfelt conversation. Deep conversation about things that they hadn't talked to other people about before. They came to know each other in a very powerful way, which sounds delightful. But have you ever had two of your best friends fall in love and forget about you? What happened? We want so much for the people we care about to fall in love. This can happen with your kids too, right? They fall in love and they forget about the rest of the world. Well, what happened for Rumi is that he had disciples, people who followed him, who were jealous and felt deserted and abandoned by their teacher because their teacher went off with someone whom they, first of all, felt was not worthy of his teaching. And he left and deserted them and they were angry about it. And when Rumi and Shams came back, the community around them was in an uproar. They were not nice to either man. They were upset and frustrated. So Shams, after a short period, left and went to Damascus. He went away because it was hard on everyone. And if you left someone and they were being hurt, wouldn't you want to make that easier? So Shams went away to Damascus and Rumi was heartbroken in every sense of the word. Imagine if you had found the teacher who sparked your soul and who actually really saw you for who you were. And suddenly the teacher was gone. So the teacher went away, Shams went away, and Rumi was so heartbroken that he sent his son to Damascus to look for him. And when his son found Shams, he begged him, pleaded with him for his father's good to please come back. Now, his son was no less approving of Shams, but a child's heart goes out to their parent. So he went for his father's friend and brought him back. And when he came back, nothing had changed. It was hard. It was hard to be together. So there are two stories, once again, of what happened at that point. The first story is that Rumi was married and that his wife had a daughter, Rumi's stepdaughter. She was 12 years old. And that Rumi believed that if he could just give Shams some connection, something that motivated him, he would stay. And in that culture, to be married was a very powerful thing. It gave you status. So if he were to marry Rumi's daughter, that status of Rumi's family would pass down to Shams. And at that time and in that place, and at that time even in, in our area, being married to someone 12 years old was not nearly so outrageous as it is now. So the daughter was married to Shams. Shams stayed for some time, but ultimately either was murdered. He disappeared. He either was murdered or he moved away. There is a tomb for Shams in Iran. But the story most often told is that he was murdered. The other story is that Shams and Rumi 
although married, were madly in love, that they were actually partners in life, that they were very close to one another in all ways and had a man-to-man relationship that was powerful and strong and meaningful and that ultimately Shams left, he disappeared one day and was either murdered or went to Iran where there is a tomb that marks his grave. So we have no judgment here on lifestyle. We are an inclusive spiritual community where we recognize and express our oneness with our creator and all creation. We have no, no judgment about that. And truth-telling is really important in studies, and this is where culture becomes a consideration. So in that culture, even to this day, it's very normal for men to walk holding each other's hands. If you've ever been in Egypt or Turkey or the Middle East, it's, it's very common I've had the opportunity to travel there. And men will walk hand in hand down the street as friends. It's how they do it. It's normal. Here, that would seem unusual for us. There, you would not walk hand in hand if you are a man and a woman. You would not do that. It is countercultural to them. So love expressed, but which you could carry, you could hold the hand of a woman friend. It's just a different way of being. So in their culture, it was normal for a man to walk hand in hand with another man. The love expressed between those men was powerful and palpable. And wouldn't it be for you if you had found the perfect teacher who reflected God? Because that's what Rumi thought of Shams, that this was God incarnate. This is the closest he had ever come. The closest he had ever come to something so profound. To teachings that opened him in a way words can't describe. And he spoke about Shams as the beloved. And he spoke about the divine as the beloved, capital B. So... As we look through the culture, there are things that are important to notice. One of the reasons that, that in our American culture, we tend to see these two men as lovers is because they use that word. They use the word lover. But remember, this is a different language that was translated into our language in the last hundred years. It's not the original Persian language. And what have we learned about language translation? It can be totally wrong, can't it? It can be totally misinterpreted when we run one culture, the language of one culture through the language of another. So an example of that is there's a writing by Rumi where he speaks of being naked to his friend, naked to his beloved. But remember that, that in that particular religious practice, things were different. So for example, part of the teachings of Rumi uh, are the, provide the foundation for the whirling dervish practice. So on the video, you see, you saw the whirling dervishes come in in their capes, right? So when they begin to whirl, that cape goes away and they become naked. There is an opening and a releasing of, of all their earthly ties that is spoken to as becoming naked. It's not the same thing, is it? 
to become naked to a person that you love in a spiritual way can be opening your heart completely to each other in a way you never have when you allow yourself to be fully seen. So it's important when we're reading Rumi and we're thinking about Rumi and we're processing Rumi through us that we don't get stuck in the words, that we understand there is something more than word. There is a, there's a cultural reference. There is an experience. And the words are just the surface of that, aren't they? The, the remarkable thing about Rumi is his words are the surface of a profound experience. A profound experience. So you saw in the video that, that in Sufi practices, it's not about words. It doesn't mean the words don't have power. They do. But it's not about words. It's about practice and connection and experience. And when we see a dervish whirl, there's a tremendous amount of symbology there. The hat that they wear represents the tombstone. That place of setting down your, your human ego and stepping into your more more brilliant, more light body self. That releasing of the cloak is to release that which is your bond to this life, your earthly mortal way of being, to let that drop and to turn, to turn, to turn, to turn. Do you know how fast we turn on this planet? 1,000 miles an hour. Right this moment. We are moving 1,000 miles an hour through space. That, it just is mind-boggling to me. Do you feel dizzy? (laughs) Maybe that's why I woke up feeling dizzy this morning. Like, we don't even notice it. And that's what the whirling dervishes say, that they don't get dizzy. They are turning as a way of releasing themselves from this place and opening to the other. And you'll see that the right hand goes up and the left hand goes down. The right hand goes up to open and receive and connect to the holy. And the left hand comes down to bring that wisdom back down into the earth. There's a whole process that is happening that is beyond words. So profoundly beyond words. It's mystical experience. Whirling dervishes whirl for six and seven hours. Six and seven hours. Can you imagine? I don't think I can turn in one direction for two minutes without losing my balance. But it's a mystical experience. Charles Fillmore, he meditated for that same period, six and seven hours of being still. We do it for like three minutes. Six or seven hours. Mystical experience is, it's not fast food. It takes time and commitment and practice and learning how. Mystical experience opens us up to a different kind of love. So Shams taught that we are the reflection of God's love. And I think of it like this. I think of, of what it's like to look at the sun. And when you try and look at the sun, you have to close your eyes, don't you? 
Because it makes your eyes water. It's, there's so much light. It's so bright. It's so much more than we can take in. But we have no problem seeing sunlight when it bounces off the moon. We can look at it. We can take it in. We can admire the beauty. We can watch it from the moment the moon comes up to its highest point and all the way down again to its lowest point. It's the same light. It's simply a reflection. And what Shams taught Rumi and what Rumi teaches through his writings is that we are that reflection of the divine. That when we look at each other, we see the holy in a way that we could never see if God was right in front of us. If we were able to get outside of God somehow and look back, it would be so much more than we could take in. But we can see the holy on the face of each person that we encounter. We can get to know that which is sacred and sweet and God, that deep and profound love with one another. And that's why we fall in love with one another. That's why. Because we're looking for that rich, deep, powerful connection. That place where we can take divine love in completely to our hearts. So much so that people around us might think we're ignoring them that we've gone a little bit off the deep end, that we're a little preoccupied. That's what love is about, becoming that. So if you have some idea in your mind that when your life is over in this physical shell that you might want to do something else and it might involve coming into union with the holy, it's probably a good idea to practice love now. Because you're going to have a whole big lot of it to take in. So how much can you love? How much will you risk? How many of you have fallen in love before? Many hands. What happens when you fall in love? Besides going a little crazy, what else happens? Anybody experienced heartbreak? Ah, yes. If you fall in love, you're going to experience the bliss of it and the pain of it. No matter how perfect your relationship is, you will experience that. You will experience union and separation. Maybe over and over again with the same person. Maybe in different ways. That is love. It, it is not a one-way street. It moves, doesn't it? It opens us deeper and deeper. So what happens a lot of times is that when, when we experience love, we build a shield. Every brick, every time we love and get hurt, we put a new brick on the wall. Mm, not going to do that again. Not going to do that again. Not going to do that again. Okay, maybe for you. <laughs> right? Over and over, we build this wall. Our great work as we study Rumi, as we work together, is to take bricks down, to trust again, to open again to love, to look more deeply for the love in one another, to see the reflection of the divine. And that 
my friends, is what Rumi is all about. So I have some quotes for you today. These are actually quotes from Shams, writings of Shams, and I thought I would share them with you. The first is this. Instead of resisting to changes, surrender. Let life be with you, not against you. If you think my life will be upside down, don't worry. How do you know down is not better than upside? (laughs) The universe is a complete, unique entity. Everything and everyone is bound together with some invisible strings. Do not break anyone's heart. Do not look down on weaker than you. One sorrows that the other side of the world can make the entire world suffer. One's happiness can make the entire world smile. Most of conflicts and tensions are due to language. Don't pay so much attention to the words. In love's country, language doesn't have its place. Love is mute. And finally, this one, you can study God through everything and everyone in the universe because God is not confined in a mosque, synagogue, or church. But if you are still in need of knowing where exactly God's abode is, there is only one place to look in the heart of a true lover.